This is an ABC podcast. G'day, I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Coming up on this week, they're UFOs, but not from outer space. Four mysterious flying objects shot out of the sky. So what were they? And is the government's climate policy about to meet the same fate in the Senate? But first, unemployment ticked up for the second month in a row this week, fueling fears about where the economy is headed. Along with the sky-high cost of living and more signals interest rates will keep on rising, it also came as a slap in the face to many doing it tough when several of the big banks unveiled bumper profits. Australia's biggest bank has unveiled a record-breaking profit. In just six months, Commonwealth Bank made a thumping $5.15 billion in cash profit. I think it's appalling and it's just a sign of the appalling greed that we're seeing these days. It doesn't feel right and it doesn't feel right that those people will all be getting massive bonuses. There's no one caring about the common man. Be it the banks, be it the corporate, be it the government. The man who's copping much of the heat, rightly or wrongly, is of course the Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe, who was put under the parliamentary griller twice this week. I get a lot of people writing to me at the moment, telling me their, about their personal circumstances, and it's really, really tough, and we understand that. And, you know, I read those letters and hear those stories with a very heavy heart. Despite that, he offered borrowers little hope he's considering easing off in his battle to contain inflation. No indication whatsoever. He knows he's on the way out, and what he wants to do, what every governor wants to do, is to leave inflation in good order. Peter Martin is visiting fellow at the Crawford School of Government at ANU. It's not in good order, right? Nearly 8%. Sure, it's forecast to come down, but that's how high it is. Way out of the 2 to 3% band that we've had uh, since the early 1990s. He wants to see it well on the way to returning there and to leave things in good order for his successor. And there's really nothing that can stop him. Right, so he's likely to keep ratcheting up pressure on borrowers by pushing interest rates up further, potentially. We have, though, also heard a lot about the narrow path he's treading. And this week, unemployment ticked up again amid warnings from some quarters that ongoing rate rises could lead to recession. So how is that likely to figure in the RBA's thinking right now? It's like, uh, you know, being a a motorbike rider riding along the edge of a cliff. (laughs) Uh, He judges that the Australian economy is healthy enough to withstand several more interest rate rises because he wants to get inflation down. Most people these days think of inflation as uh, an inconvenience, uh, you know, a few higher prices. To a Reserve Bank governor, inflation is disorder. The last time we had big inflation, which is in the 70s, we had wage rises. Wages were adjusted every quarter four times a year. As soon as people saw a price in a shop that they thought was halfway reasonable, they'd buy something because it would be higher in price in a few months or a few weeks' time. We're now in, in, in have got to the state where you're getting into that sort of territory again, and 
he wants us to return to 2 to 3%, which is essentially negligible. Most people don't even bother to make a calculation about what will happen to prices. He wants, he regards it as his mission to get us back there. And there's really nothing that can stop him. Yes, it's difficult, but he will err on the side of getting inflation down. That's a very clear message he's been giving, rather than err on the side of uh, concern for jobs or uh, risk of recession. The thing is, though, it hasn't really been working too well because it feels like every time rates go up, we're told the real impact will show up in three months. I, I seem to remember hearing that Christmas was going to be really tight for people and then we saw record sales and spending no, no, inflation no, Christmas was tight. higher than no, expected. Christmas was tight. Okay. So we did have some impact. It was a worse Christmas than the one before, which is uh, unusual. And the time delay, if you like, is said to be 6 to 18 months. So lots of the effect of the interest rate rises uh, won't come through for a while. We've seen the kick up in unemployment uh, this week. So the but, but inflation rises, keeps coming in higher than expected. Yes, but the best guess is inflation will come down. It's on the way down in the US. Oil prices are, are falling. Wheat prices are falling. The, the effects of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, world supply chains have uh, found workarounds. So inflation is falling, but he is not satisfied with that. He doesn't merely want to be sure or doesn't merely want to believe that inflation might be falling. He wants to make sure it's falling back toward 2 to 3%. And that's why he's prepared to put up rates further. Even though spending is now starting to ease off, even though the effect of what is done, the full effect, is yet to play out, he wants to be sure. And he only has until the end of September to be sure that he's achieved something because then he's out of the job. We also saw record profits this week from the Commonwealth Bank and big profits too from NAB and the RBA governor defending those big banks. We're told strong banks are good, certainly better than weak banks for the country, but does that cut it, do you think, at this time? Well, it doesn't cut it for a member of the public, but the Reserve Bank's job is inflation, employment, some nebulous thing about the welfare of the Australian people, and stability of the financial system. Now, that means big, strong banks that won't collapse. That's why during the global financial crisis, the big four banks were able to take over Bank SA, Bank West, St George Bank, because the government, the Reserve Bank, wanted strong banks. That's not in the consumer's interest to have uh, banks that are in a sort of quasi-monopoly, you know, the the, the oligopoly of the big four, having all of the business and charging healthily for it so they can't collapse. That's not in the public's interest, but the Reserve Bank doesn't have that public interest as part of its charter. The government this week also ordered an ACCC inquiry into the speed at which banks pass on interest rate changes to mortgage accounts as opposed to savings accounts. What's going on here? And do you think an inquiry could lead to any actual change here? Well, the mere fact of an inquiry will encourage banks to lift their game. The banks, by the way, do this all the time. They even have a a term for it, lagging profits. These are the profits you make by, when rates are going up, having increases in your deposit rates, lagging the increases in your mortgage rates. So 
The Reserve Bank Governor, Philip Lowe, as you say, unlikely to stick around after September. Is there anything significant that his replacement would or should or, or could do differently? Or do you think it'll just be a new face with the same core mission? We have an inquiry into that now, the Reserve Bank Review. It reports to the Treasurer next month in March. That's looking at everything uh, the bank does and uh, everything it's done badly. There'll be a new governor appointed as a result of that. And my best guess from reading the submissions to the review is that it's actually likely not to change very much. So the 2 to 3% inflation target we've got is much the same as those around the rest of the world. It served us well up until now. It's meant we've been able to get unemployment down quite low and uh, still have prices stable. I'm not too sure that the, sort of the Reserve Bank's running orders will change. I think what might change is the way the board works. So at the moment you have these non-experts on the board, often they're uh, you know distinguished business people. That will probably change. Uh, there's there might be a suggestion that in the future there's a committee of experts. Maybe rates will be set by a monetary policy committee, not the board, that has experts on it who can challenge the bank. So I think the mechanics of how the banks works might change, but the tools it has and the target it applies them to probably won't. Peter Martin there, the economy editor for The Conversation. Well, hello, everybody. Uh, I am sitting in my driveway here in Billings, Montana, and... This thing is up in the sky. Well, it started with a weather balloon floating over the United States. Oh my God, they shot it down. But we've now seen four unidentified craft shot down by the US military. And we're told three of the objects were not part of the Chinese balloon program. But no one can say what they were. And it's raised plenty of questions about international espionage and also seen tensions flare again between the US and China. The intelligence community's current assessment is that these three objects were most likely balloons tied to private companies, recreation or research institutions studying weather or conducting other scientific research. Javed Ali is a former national security and intelligence official. He's now associate professor at the Ford School of Public Policy in the US. Over the past week, I would say this is a pretty unusual set of developments uh, from a U.S. national security perspective. And now that I've had a little bit of time to think about it and see how the story is changing and evolving, it's a great case study on this intersection between intelligence collection and analysis and operational decisions and national security decision-making at the highest levels all the way up to President Biden. And a sprinkling of politics, no doubt, as well. Starting with the balloon, we understand it's from China. From what's been recovered at the wreckage site, what do we know about what sort of information or intelligence that balloon was gathering? Well, that the recovery effort appears to be still ongoing based on media reporting. Now, there have been drips and drabs about features of equipment from the balloon, um, antennas, solar panels, perhaps cameras, 
I don't think anybody knows, at least from the outside looking in, precisely the different types of sensors uh, and equipment that were on the balloon, how they were configured before being shot down, and then most importantly, what types of information was the balloon collecting either before it got over the continental United States and then for those four or five days while it was over the continental United States, and how much of that information went back to Beijing? Those are all questions that myself as a former intelligence professional would really like to know the answers to, and I don't think the, the case has been made publicly yet on, on how all of that has played out. We are fairly certain, though, that it was gathering intelligence. Is that right? That is definitely the way the administration and the U.S. military have described this balloon, and I suspect that is to rebut the Chinese claim that this was a civilian weather balloon. Now, again, what specifically were the priorities or the targets of of the collection that was going on for some period of time? We don't know the answer to that. But if you look at even the track of the balloon that we know uh, over the continental United States for four or five days before it got shot down, is it a coincidence that the balloon was either drifting on its own or in some combination being maneuvered remotely by uh, Chinese pilots or officers um, over military bases, uh, ballistic missile uh, sites, and they may not have been loitering there for a long period of time, um, but that that seems like it's, it wasn't a coincidence that that track happened as well. So much of the focus in regards to spying these days is in cyberspace, hacking and the like. So why would China be messing around with balloons? It, it seems like old tech. Well, China is has engaged in a, a variety of different espionage efforts against the United States. Um, and so I don't think the issue here is the fact that China is engaging in espionage. I mean, that has been going on for a long period of time, and most every country engages in some form of espionage to enhance its understanding of the world around it and support policymaking and, and uh, military decision-making. What I think is different here is that whatever China's capabilities are to understand the U.S. military or national security posture from from space, the balloons and their the administration said there were at least four other of these types of balloon missions since 2020. These balloons appear to be filling some kind of gap that China appears that they can't be able to collect from a greater distance, and then perhaps you know other types of of systems on the cyber side, China has done very well with respect to conducting economic espionage that benefits both their uh, military and their civilian economy. That's one of the reasons why the Chinese military has grown both qualitatively and quantitatively these last 20, 30 years. But at least as far as the public record has shown, China hasn't been as adept when it comes to clandestinely using cyber methods to uh, to go after really difficult U.S. military or intelligence um, targets. So, so this balloon system may be a way to round out the edges in this much broader intelligence enterprise that, that China has aimed against the U.S. China was pretty upset about it being shot out of the sky. What's the case for it to be okay to shoot down a balloon that's flying over your country gathering intelligence, but not a satellite that admittedly is moving much faster, much higher, but also gathering intelligence. 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's clearly a difference in terms of any country's ability to defend its sovereignty at a relatively upper level of the atmosphere versus trying to hit a satellite um, that is 10 to 15 miles above the Earth's surface. And that's a different kind of warfare altogether. And we haven't really seen manifestations of that kind of fight in, in space. There's a lot of people talking about it, but it hasn't happened. So this, from the U.S. perspective, was seen more as a more brazen attempt um, at surveillance but also allowed the U.S. to take some action that it can't take against satellites in space or hasn't yet taken against satellites in space because that would just open up Pandora's box in terms of all the countries that have satellites orbiting the Earth at any one time. So then authorities there made a few tweaks to their radar systems and all of these other flying objects popped up on the radar screen. And this is where things got a bit weird to the point that the White House was assuring us that extraterrestrial beings weren't behind these objects. I just wanted to make sure we address this from the White House. I know there have been questions and, and concerns about this, but there is no, again, no indication of aliens or extraterrestrial activity with these recent takedowns. Would you tell us? I, I'm just, you know, I loved E.T., the movie, but I'm, I'm just going to leave it there. Now we're told the three other objects didn't come from China, that they weren't for spying, but that one was octagon-shaped, one was cylindrical. What on earth were they? Yeah, and this is another question we're all left wondering. Are, are these objects um, sort of the, the the remainder of research programs or uh, other civilian uh, or weather-related missions that just kind of get lost in the system and they're just kind of hanging around in the upper atmosphere around the world. And then at some point they start drifting lower and lower. I mean, there could be dozens of these things at any one point in time. And now I think it's a question of each country. Once you detect these objects in your airspace, you have to make a decision on whether you want it to continue to, to be there or not, if it is not serving your own national purpose. And the fact that no U.S company or academic um, institution has claimed responsibility for these also makes it interesting, but apparently they're not connected in at any level, as you mentioned, to China or the initial Chinese surveillance balloons. So that thread will have to get pulled as well. So do you think we're now in a place where anything unidentified that's flying through the air is going to be blown out of the sky if it strays into U.S. airspace? Or, or will this all, pardon the pun, blow over? Uh, so that's a great question. I, I think it depends. That might, that might not be a great answer, but part of it might be the object, um, where it's located, what is the potential U.S. or Canadian capability to take it down safely. And there may be a future scenario where and it, will it also be a threat to um, civilian aircraft or military aircraft transiting that level of the atmosphere? There may be a scenario where the decision is made not to shoot something down. But these all take time to to figure out and understand before you take action. And so what we saw over the past couple of weeks was these really hasty decisions. And they all they could have been the right ones. But again, it seemed pretty hasty. There may be a more deliberate process going forward behind the next potential decision to shoot any any of these objects now. Javed Ali there from the Ford School of Public Policy in the United States. 
When Prime Minister Anthony Albanese passed his emissions reduction target into law with the full backing of big business, there was a flicker of hope the years of political brawling and climate policy drift were over. Australia has to end the climate wars. An opportunity to reach for solutions, not arguments. An opportunity to provide the certainty going forward. But this week, shots were fired once again over a policy designed to reduce emissions by 43% by 2030, which the coalition won't support. Yes, and our, our position's been clear. Uh, this is a, a tax that's being imposed. Uh, it's three times the tax that Julia Gillard proposed. It's going to drive up the cost of living. And in echoes of the Greens' decision to scuttle Kevin Rudd's carbon pollution reduction scheme back in 2009, the minor party is threatening to team up with the coalition once more to block Labor's new policy, unless there's a ban on all new coal and gas projects. These coal and gas projects that they want to open, that they're putting in their emissions projections, they are massive. We're talking about 34 billion tonnes of pollution, 68 years' worth of Australia's pollution in those Northern Territory gas fields alone. Why does Labor want to open them up? Alison Reeve is the Climate Change and Energy Deputy Program Director at the Grattan Institute. This legislation mostly covers industrial emissions and they make up about 30% of Australia's total emissions. They're on track to be, either this year or next year, the largest single source of emissions after electricity. And if we don't pass this legislation, those emissions will continue to grow unconstrained. And that was going to make it close to impossible to meet the government's target of a 43% emissions reduction by 2030. And it's going to position the sector very, very poorly for getting to 2050. If you think about where we are now and having to be at net zero in 2050, you want that line downwards to be as smooth as possible. The longer that we delay the more that it looks like a plateau and then a cliff rather than a gentle hill that we roll down. And so in order to have a smooth economic transition across the whole of the Australian economy, you really want to start as early as possible so that you can do it in a smooth and considered way. If the legislation doesn't pass, what we're starting to look at is that emissions just continue on unconstrained and then at some point a whole lot of things fall off a cliff and that means it's going to be very economically disruptive. At the heart of Labor's policy to bring down emissions is the so-called safeguards mechanism. Just explain to us how that works. So the safeguard mechanism was originally introduced by the um, Abbott government in 2015 and what it does is it puts a mandatory cap on the emissions of large industrial facilities and some other polluters like airlines. That's called a baseline and they have to keep their emissions below that baseline. If they go above it, they have to buy an offset. So, you know, someone somewhere else has to plant some trees or do a project that reduces emissions somewhere else and they have to pay for that to happen. Now, under the coalition government, there was a lot of headroom between companies' actual emissions and what their baseline was. And so there was actually a lot of room for their emissions to grow and the emissions did grow. The ALP's policy is to remove the headroom that's underneath those caps and then start to move the caps downwards so that over time, businesses have to either adjust their operations so that their emissions stay below their cap or they need to buy more offsets from elsewhere in the economy. What that should do over time is push emissions down on a path that's pretty consistent with getting to net zero by 2050. 
if you're not moving that baseline down, is it actually achieving anything? No. The, the thing about the, the safeguard mechanism to date is that all of that it has really done is put a reporting burden onto business because they have to measure their emissions every year and report what they are, but there's no actual outcome achieved in terms of constraining the growth of emissions. So it's kind of the worst kind of red tape that you can think of, something that just puts a cost on business and doesn't actually achieve anything. You mentioned carbon credits, and we have seen concerns this week from Four Corners of potential problems with one carbon credit scheme where rainforest in PNG was still being cut down. Are there broader issues with this element of the policy that they do rely in part on carbon credits, on on businesses offsetting their emissions? At the moment, the safeguard only allows you to use carbon credits that are created within Australia. So that means um, projects here that are about avoiding deforestation or, you know, replanting trees or managing soil carbon or, or whatever those things are. So all offset schemes have to grapple with whether or not the activity that they're providing credits for is additional. So you have to take people on trust that when they say, I was going to cut that tree down and now I'm not going to cut that tree down because you paid me, you have to, to trust that in the first place they they really were genuinely going to cut the tree down. Now, there's lots of things you can do in scheme design to try and minimise the amount of offsets that don't have high integrity. But the thing is you always will have a little bit of an additionality problem. And you, I think really what governments need to do is actually invest a lot more money into continually monitoring and tightening up methods so that you keep that problem as small as you possibly can. So the coalition is now opposed to Labor's policy, even though they were the original architects of the safeguard mechanism. The other problem for the government is the Greens. They're saying that they may block this policy unless there's an end to coal and gas development. Now, Labor has ruled that out. But is it feasible in an energy security sense to just stop all coal and gas? Well, most of our coal and gas is exported. And it's it's what happens in international markets that drives the development of coal and gas in Australia. Now, the thing is that we are going to need, at least until 2030 and probably a bit beyond that as well, we are going to need coal and gas for our own use within Australia. And particularly um, on the gas side, there are some potential shortages of gas in the East Coast market, which will mean you need to open up new sources of supply in the short term in order to fill those gaps. The question about what happens with exports is really down to what other countries decide to do. We're in this period at the moment where coal and gas prices are very high because of the war between Russia and Ukraine. Now, The thing is that that is temporary because hopefully that war comes to an end. And the other thing that has happened is that those high prices have actually accelerated the move away from coal and gas in lots of markets, particularly in Europe. And that will not come back. So we do rely on on coal and gas exports at the moment, but we also need to recognise that our future prosperity is not going to lie in coal and gas because those markets will disappear And stopping coal and gas development dead, does that actually reduce emissions? It's it's actually an interesting question. 
our emissions budget is now legislated. So the government passed legislation last year that said there's a certain amount of CO2 that can go into the atmosphere between now and 2030. If you stop coal and gas projects, what that does is it frees up part of that budget for somewhere else in the economy. It doesn't necessarily change that budget unless you actually change the legislation to change the number that the budget is based on. So if you stopped all coal and gas projects, probably what that would mean is that other sectors of the economy would actually get a bit more breathing space and we could hit that 43% target without those other, other sectors changing. And the thing is, you want those other sectors to also be on that glide path downwards because if you let them grow and then have to start pushing them down later, that's more expensive and more disruptive. Alison Reeve there from the Grattan Institute. And that's the episode for this week. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button or if you're feeling really generous, leave us a review. This week is produced by Madeline Jenner, Nick Grimm, Anna John and me, David Lipson.